I'm Gregory Berg. If you follow sports at all, I'm sure that you have heard over the last several days the announcement that the great Swiss tennis champion Roger Federer is retiring after one of the most distinguished careers in the last quarter century. Because of that announcement, I am replaying in the podcast version of the morning show this weekend two memorable conversations that both involved the career of Roger Federer. The following interview dates back to 2010. Some of you may remember an interview which I did last year with a highly acclaimed uh, sports writer by the name of L. John Wertheim. He's a senior writer for Sports Illustrated, the author of a number of different books, and actually our first conversation, that is my first conversation with Mr. Wertheim, was about his uh, book Blood in the Cage, uh, which chronicled the, uh, the emergence of mixed martial arts. And um, we spoke last year, however, about uh, a book uh, about my favorite sport of tennis and about two of my favorite players, and I'm, I suspect the favorites of many of you as well, Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal, and one of the best sports books I've ever read called Strokes of Genius, Federer, Nadal, and the Greatest Match Ever Played. This book is now available in paperback. And as yet another Wimbledon championship is being waged, uh, this is a great time to uh, catch up with L. John Wertheim and to revisit this wonderful book and the uh, uh, amazing rivalry between Federer and Nadal, two of the greatest uh, geniuses that, and champions and warriors that uh, the sport of tennis has ever seen. And their rivalry is, in a sense, more than more than the sum of their individual contributions, but it is Federer and Nadal and the unique chemistry that is part of their, their, uh, their rivalry. Again, this book is called Strokes of Genius, now available in paperback. And uh, L. John Wertheim, we welcome you back to The Morning Show. Thanks. Great, great to be here. Bear with some uh, some authentic uh, crowd noise in the back. But, uh, <laughs> no, good, good to be here. Oh, you're you're in the midst of some excitement, huh? There you go. Very good. Uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is about the subtitle "Federer Nadal and the Greatest Match Ever Played," and we are talking about the Wimbledon final of a couple of years ago. The most recently fought Wimbledon men's final was between Roger Federer and Andy Roddick and was an extraordinary battle as well. I don't even remember how far it went into the fifth set, but, I mean, really, Wimbledon has never seen a men's final quite like that. Um, would you nevertheless continue to hold Federer and Nadal as the greatest uh, match ever played? And if so, how does it... Uh, no, that's a good question. No, 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 it's... Uh... You know, I, I think I, I think I would. I think the moral of the story is don't uh, when you title a book, uh, don't be careful with superlatives. But um, no, I, th I think last year's final, which you're right. I mean, it was a tremendous match, and it ended 16 to 14 in the in the fifth set. Uh, it, it came close, and sure, if you you know if you've had tickets to the final uh, of, of the men's event in Wimbledon these last couple of years, you sure have gone away pretty satisfied. But uh, no, I, I still think that Nadal Federer match. Um, Stands up it says the greatest ever. It was, uh, you know, it was one versus two, which we didn't have last year. Every close, every set was just so close, which we didn't have last year. And there was so much riding on the match. Um, you know, last, last year's final again. Yeah, I don't want to diminish that in any way, but 
the Federer Nadal final, really, whoever won this match was going to be number one and had the storyline of these two rivals and the, the newcomer trying to sort of invade the territory of the, the old guard, just trying to just defend his turf. It just it had all those classic elements. And then just from a, you know, just from a quality and tennis standpoint, I think it stands up as a greatest match. I mean, here are these two guys, they're these rivals. They're playing on the biggest stage, the Wimbledon final. This is a match everybody's wanted to see for fun, and they they deliver. And last year's final, again, was just incredible stuff and great drama, but it, it didn't quite have as much texture and nuance as the Federer-Nadal final. And it also, you know, and I think everybody would agree with this, it, it didn't have quite as high uh, quality of play as, as the tennis that day in 2008, which, you know, was probably, just from a quality standpoint, the best match I've ever seen. Mm. One of the things I think your book does such a good job of doing is to characterize the contrast between Mr. Federer and Mr. Nadal uh, without falling back on some of the cliches or caricatures which are so tempting, uh, <laughs> even even for sports journalists. Uh, I mean, we, we, we find all kinds of, of interesting comparisons made. I mean... Uh, one of your colleagues at Sports Illustrated, S.L. Price, uh, likened uh, Federer to uh, Fred Astaire and Rafael Nadal to Marlon Brando. And uh, uh, someone else wrote something about you know beauty versus brawn or brain versus brawn. One of the things your book does is to, to, in a sense, caution us to not reach for that because there is plenty of brawn and guts in Roger Federer and there is plenty of artistry in Rafael Nadal. Yeah, I mean, I think anytime there are rivalries, uh, it's sort of very easy to, you know, do do what they do in movies or sort of do what we see uh, in, in other senses and just make it to sort of this dualism and you've got a, a good guy and a bad guy and it, it sort of just break things down into opposites and compare and contrast. And it really, it, it's more nuanced uh, with these two guys and it sort of shortchanges them to just sort of make it out as, as something as simple as, you know, art versus science or brain versus brawn or good versus evil. I mean, I think something that makes this rivalry so unique is, is first of all, the complexity. The better, I think, is a lot grittier, and we saw this, uh, you know, his first-round match at Wimbledon, but a lot grittier than he's sort of given credit for. And Nadal is a lot more sort of uh, sort of artistic than, than he's given credit for. And it, it just, um, you know, I mean, I, I sort of understand the temptation, and we like to, to have sort of easy points of comparison, but... It's just a much more complex dynamic than you know an A side versus a B side, you know an A an A versus a B like that. Hmm. We're speaking with L. John Wertheim about his book *Strokes of Genius*, which examines uh, Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, and uh, in particular the amazing uh, final which they played at uh, Wimbledon in 2008. Um, something which I missed the first time I read your book and just caught. Uh, this when when I took up your book again to prepare for this interview, is something you mentioned in the acknowledgments that um, you looked back to uh, a book that was written many years ago by someone named John McPhee, and uh, I, it's a book I've never read, but I really want to try to get my hands on a copy of this. And you mentioned the book in the acknowledgments to, in effect, contrast what this author did with uh, a certain great match from many years ago and what you did 
with this particular match. Can you just uh, tell our listeners about that interesting contrast? Yeah, the, the John, John McPhee, sort of a great prolific writer um, who you know, writes, writes a lot for The New Yorker, probably in his, in his 70s now. He, he wrote a book, um, you, you know, boy, it must be uh, almost 40 years ago, uh, and, and it's titled Levels of the Game. And he took a match between Arthur Ashe and a, and a player, uh, Gravener, another American, and sort of used this U.S. Open match to talk about a number of topics. And I thought, I thought that just worked so well, and I thought that was also a pretty effective device to discuss uh, Nadal and Federer. And sort of, uh, you know, people like a, a great tennis match, but nobody wants to read, you know, 200 pages about forehands and aces up the middle and, and play-by-play. And uh, John McPhee was sort of able to use the, the give-and-take of tennis and, you know, the ball going over from one side of the net to the other. It really sort of lends itself pretty well um, to this sort of exploration, and then that was, you know, definitely uh, an inspiration. I mean, it was it was a little different uh, in a variety of senses. Number one, you know, a lot of the theme with the Arthur Ashe book was was race relations and the state of the U.S. at the time, late '60s, early '70s, and that that obviously, you know, wasn't so relevant to Federer Nadal. But just the notion of framing uh, a broader discussion within the context of a single match, I thought was uh, was really effective. Hmm. Of course, what he did is. He sat down with tape of the or film back then of that match and these two players. And, of course, you didn't get to do that with Mr. Federer and Mr. Nadal. Uh, in effect, your, your book is the result of, of uh, not an afternoon with these two players, but sort of your ongoing relationship with both of them and uh, many others who know them well. Yeah, I, I think it, it says something. And I hope, uh, I mean, Federer and Nadal couldn't be sort of nicer and more accessible and you know they're both sort of supported and helped with this project i think it's just a sign of the times and a you know a symptom of the demands that are put on celebrity but when when john mcphee wrote this book he sort of caught up with arthur ash and he had a tape of the match and they sat in a hotel room for four hours and sort of watched it uh, stroke by stroke and um you know it, it was great uh sort of it would be great to have that sort of access and that sort of availability but it's hard Hard to imagine. Uh, hard to imagine too many contemporary athletes um, with with that. You know, honestly, with that sort of time on their hands. So, yeah, I had to go about it a little bit differently. But um, you know, but but Federer and Nadal both. Uh, and I think that's part of the the overall story too. Is that for for everything we see about celebrity and for all the trouble certain athletes have gotten into. You know, you you couldn't apart from the the athleticism and sort of how they play out as sportsmen. You you couldn't ask for you know for for lack of a better phrase, two better guys. I mean, just, just two good guys that people should feel good about rooting for. People should feel good about having them represent tennis. And, uh, you know, you cynically, some of us sort of wait for the other shoe to drop and hope there's not a Tiger Woods or a Kobe Bryant moment. But I, I don't think that's going to happen. And part of what makes this rivalry so special is these guys have been able to do what they do at this level and still, you know, still, still basically be good human beings. So, right. um, you know, it's sort of all the more reason to root for them. Here's how, the way you, you write it at one point in your book. I think you say this so well. Um, perhaps because neither player is remotely offensive, Federer and Nadal do not cleave public opinion the way most rivals do. And uh, I hadn't stopped to think about that, but that really is true, that, uh, that uh, you know, once upon a time, um, chances are you liked Billie Jean King or Margaret Court. 
or you liked Chris Everett, or you liked Martina Navratilova. And there might be a few fans that uh, honestly, authentically liked them both, but uh, chances are you would really be choosing Borg or McEnroe and not rooting for them both. But you suggest that this is a different kind of rivalry uh, where you have lots of people that want both of these players to win. Yeah, I mean, you think about all sports rivalries, and you know whether it's tennis, you know Borg Macro, or whether it's you know Ali Frazier or Lakers Celtics, or you know just sort of Oregon Oregon State, and I mean whatever whatever the rivalry is, there usually is this element of of dislike and disdain, and you know, nobody says they like you know Rush Limbaugh and Keith Olbermann. Um, in this rivalry, it, it's just funny though because it seems like it, it's totally normal to root for either of them and both of them. And I think a lot of that is a function of the fact that they don't dislike each other at all. So if, if Federer has nothing but nice things to say about Nadal and vice versa, I mean, they just they just asked Nadal if he might be better than Federer, and he said anyone that suggests that doesn't know tennis. So I mean, imagine saying to Muhammad Ali, do you think Frazier is better than you? And he says, of course, if you don't think Frazier is better than I am, you don't know boxing. So, I mean, I, th- I think this sort of gentlemanly – uh, give and take between Federer and Nadal trickles down to their fans, and it's funny to have a rivalry where you, you feel totally normal rooting for both, and both guys like each other. But um, it's sort of another quirk. It's sort of another quirk. Because I think their relationship with each other trickles down to how fans feel about them both. Absolutely, and I think a, a very impressive fact also, uh, which your your book recounts for us, is that there is also great respect when it comes to their respective entourages. I mean, the two families feel good about each other, and even those who work with each of these players have tremendous uh, respect and even affection for for the others. I was especially impressed by uh, some of what Tony Dadal, this would be Rafael's uncle and his coach, some of what he has to say about Roger Federer. Uh, I mean, it's 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 kind of astonishing um, the, the the praise that he heaps on Ro- on uh, on Roger Federer. Yeah, it's funny, too, that Wimbledon match, um, you know, at the final, the way the player's box is set up, one player's entourage sits behind the other. So, you know, I, I always say when my son plays, eight years old, when he plays Little League, one team stands on one side of the field and the other team's parents stand on the other. Here, here in the Wimbledon final, you know, the pinnacle of this sport, the two families sit one row behind each other. So um, it's it sort of, you, you couldn't, uh, you sort of, you, you learn to like the opposition. But I think... You know, I think both both families sort of have this sporting tradition. They understand, um, you know, you can be competitive. You can you can have an adversary without necessarily having, you know, dislike. And I think they're all sports fans, so they sort of stand back. And I think the Federers realize and recognize what Nadal has achieved and vice versa. And, I mean, again, it's just, I mean, imagine, put this in any other context, imagine – you know, the, the uncle of LeBron James saying, oh, no question, Kobe Bryant's the superior player. Or, you know, imagine uh, you know, the entourage of Kentucky basketball saying, oh, I think Louisville actually has a superior team. So it's, it's really sort of jarring to see such an intense rivalry and then have this, this sort of respect for the other person that, um, that really sort of bleeds over almost into admiration. Especially, and especially because, as you tell us at some point, tennis is uh... – is a real gladiatorial sport in many respects, and yet uh, a sport which, uh, especially at a place like Wimbledon, 
tends to call for a certain kind of collegiality, which we often don't see at all in other kinds of sports. Yeah, I, mean, I think because there's a net dividing the players, people sometimes misconstrue just how, how brutal this is. But, you know, it's you and your opponent, and there's, there's no coaching, there's no sort of, you know, there's no entourage between rounds to, to give you water and pump up your confidence, and there's, there's no teammates, obviously. It's just sort of you and the other dude, and one of you is going to walk off the winner and one of you is going to walk off the loser, and there's really no, you know, there's really no alternative. So, um, you know, I, I think because of the tradition and because, you know, two guys with brackets and a net dividing them, hitting a ball on a lawn, uh, you know, doesn't necessarily come to mind two guys fighting. Um, it, it doesn't get enough credit, but it's, it's really a pretty brutal individual sport. Hmm. Let's talk about each of these players and just a few of the uh, observations which which you make about them. Um I think you make a very interesting observation. I think actually you might might uh, be quoting someone else in saying that Roger Federer, who is Swiss, plays tennis that is quintessentially Swiss. Uh, that was somebody else's observation, but do you care to uh, explain how Roger Federer is, as a player, quintessentially Swiss? Um, yeah, you know, you, you sort of... It, 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 to uh, to lapse into stereotype, but you sort of think about Swiss characteristics, and there's a sort of precision and this punctuality. You think of a Swiss watch and all the gears going in order, and, and the real. I mean, I guess precision is the word I always come back to. You think about sort of a certain neutrality, a certain diplomacy, all the characteristics that you know the guy on the street would associate with Switzerland. Uh, sure, sure applies awfully well to uh, to Federer's personality and his tennis. I was really struck by this observation, you said. To his parents' frustration, Federer was an indifferent, restless student in school. Not dim, but not particularly dedicated. Tennis, however, fed something in him and commanded his full attention. Uh, I think that is the way it plays out with a whole lot of people, that uh, uh, you achieve greatness in the thing that you most love to do. But I especially love that idea about tennis for Roger being for Roger Federer being something that commanded his full attention in the end that's probably what all of us need to find is that thing that draws us to it in the way that tennis drew uh, Roger Federer yeah I mean I think the other interesting thing is that for all the you know the quote-unquote tennis parents for all these sort of hardcore sports parents that are arranging for extra batting practice and hiring nutritionists and pushing their kids the Fedders were the opposite. I mean, this is sort of a well-educated, middle-class family, and, you know, they, they wanted him to be a better student, and if he happened to like tennis, well, fine, you can ride your bike to the club after school, but, you know, we, we ain't pulling you out of class so you can hit a ball across a net. And it ended up that that sort of, in a weird way, that hands-off approach probably motivated him more than anything. And, yeah, I mean, I think you know, one, of his, one of his friends sort of joked if this had been 10 years later, uh, he would have had a, you know, ADHD diagnosis that he was, you know, not, not a dumb guy by any stretch, but just one of those kids in school that's restless, had a hard time sitting still. And at the tennis court, he could get out there and obviously had some of the, the hand-eye coordination and some of the natural talent, but also just sort of being there and running around. And he was in, he was part of a tennis team, but there weren't, you know, they're obviously not teammates, so you sort of have collegiality and the camaraderie without depending on someone to pass you the ball or play defense. Um, 
and tennis, you know, tennis just sort of clicked for him. And uh, you're right. I mean, you sort of t- you hear him talk about his his love of the game, and it's clear, as you said, this was sort of he he feels like he's found the one thing in life he was uh, cut out to do. And obviously, you know, we we should all be so lucky. Yeah, I like how you said at one point that his parents were not pushy. If anything, they were pulley. <laughs> if they nudged him at all, it was to stop taking tennis so seriously. But, of course, tennis itself seemed to have another idea. A couple other observations about Roger Federer, which I really appreciated as I reread your book. Uh, one thing you said is that the first title, major title, which uh, Roger Federer won, his first title uh, at at Wimbledon, and was that back in 2003, I think? Um you right. said that, in a sense, this first title had a catalytic effect as if a spigot had been tapped. Tell us what happened once Roger Federer had won this first major title at Wimbledon. What did that seem to well, do for him? Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny because people seem to forget now that there were, there were about, you know, it sort of reminds me of, of Michael Jordan in the beginning and certainly LeBron James now, where there were a few years there, not not obviously LeBron James in seven years, but there were there were a few years when it was sort of like, okay, this Federer guy's talented and everybody's talking about what he does on the practice court, but, you know, time to, uh, time to put up or shut up. But there have been a lot of disappointing results, and he was just sort of been known as the guy who had a lot of talent and was he ever going to do anything with it. And then he goes to, he had a terrible... People forget he had a terrible, terrible loss in the first round of the French Open that year in 2003, and people were really giving up on him and saying this guy's just a, a talented head case. And then four weeks later, he goes and wins Wimbledon, and it was just sort of, you know, some players reach the top, especially in tennis, and they just sort of say, great, I've achieved it, and now everything else is gravy, and they have a hard time sustaining it. And he sort of had the opposite reaction, which is, I've, I've got to the top of the mountain, now I know what I have to do to get here, and you know, I'm, I'm going to stay here for a while. So once he, you know, this was his first Grand Slam final in 2003, he wins that match, and then it was just lights out. I mean, then that started this era we're in now that, you know, seven years later has uh, made him the, the best player ever. It's just interesting to think about how that worked for him because one also thinks about uh, certain players who win one major singles title and then, for whatever reason, don't, quite managed to follow it up. I mean, a Michael Chang with one and only one French Open title. Or Andy Roddick, uh, or let's see, has he won more than one U.S. Open title? Oh, one, one U.S. Open. Yeah. Exactly. So so it is. it doesn't always work this way, but it sure works for Roger Nadal, or Roger Federer. Right. I mean, the other thing, too, that we see is, is players sort of yo-yo up and down. I mean, Andre Agassi was, uh, you know, obviously – sort of uh, the prime example of that. But other players, too, they're, they're up, they're down. You know, the Williams sisters, they have some injuries. I mean, Serena at one point, you know, was, was way outside the top 50. You know, Roger Federer has been either number one or number two for, uh, for six and a half, seven years now. So apart from winning consistently, he also stayed up there in the rankings and didn't have one of these these sort of dips and, and, and yo-yo careers that we, we also see a lot of. Mm. You tell us that as Federer achieved great greatness, one of the things that is most striking about him is that his entourage is, in your words, strikingly bare. <laughs> I mean, he certainly has the means to be uh, thickly insulated by uh, uh, an, an entourage that would sort of keep the world away. In fact, Federer does not operate that way. 
Yeah, you know, as far as I'm concerned, yet another reason to like the guy, that he sort of said, look, I to the top with just a few people around me, and uh, it'll stay that way. He, he finally got an agent. He kind of sort of has a coach. His wife travels with him, but she also does administrative work. And, you know, that's, that's really about it. Uh, there, there are a lot of players who aren't ranked nearly as high, who have uh, a lot more people around him. And I think, you know, I, mean, I think it says a lot about who he is and what motivates him, but I also think that, there's a real element of sort of self-sufficiency. I mean, he likes finding out solutions for himself. He likes sort of figuring out everything from, uh, you know, tactics to stringing. I, I think he doesn't want to be reliant on anyone else. And, uh, you know, again, it's another reason, as far as I'm concerned, it's another reason uh, to, to be fond of the guy. That, that you say you're right. I mean, here's a guy who makes tens of millions of dollars. He, he could have the personal, uh, he could have the personal chef and, you know the personal masseuse and the whole the whole team traveling with him as other players do, and he just sort of wants to keep it simple. And I think his attitude too, and I think this goes for a lot of things with him, is just why mess with success. You know this this arrangement's done well for me. This racket's done well for me. Why do I need to uh, to tinker just because I might have the money or the the opportunity to do so? Hmm. Rafael Nadal, you say, is often. Uh described as freakish, uh, his genius in tennis described as freakish and fluky in a raised-by-wolves kind of way. And, uh, and the fact that when one uh, thinks about Rafael Nadal, very seldom do you say, oh, he reminds me of player X. I mean, he is uh, very much a, a sort of a one-of-a-kind uh, player. And yet you tell us Nadal's game is the opposite of alien. It's homemade and meticulously handcrafted. Tell us what you mean by that. Yeah, I mean, again, we sort of think about the tennis player, and you think about driven parents, and at a young age, the kid goes off to some academy and drops out of school and hits balls for, you know, thousands of hours. And with Nadal and Federer both, they just came to this point uh, by such an unusual way. And, uh, you know, Federer's case, he just had this sort of middle-class upbringing in Switzerland. And in Nadal's case, you know, he comes from this small Spanish island. He comes from Mallorca. There really hadn't been, um, you know, hadn't been a big tennis history there. He has an uncle who certainly knows tennis but wasn't a pro or anything like that. Uh, convert him from a, you know, a righty to a lefty, which turned out to be a genius. And then sort of taught him these, these strokes. I mean, nobody hits the ball like Nadal has. And nobody is, in, you know, right now nobody's emulating him. It's a very unique way he plays tennis. Um, and it's one of these things where you could scratch your head. You could say, hey, you've got a kid that's talented. You should put him in an academy. Um, but the family sort of did it their own way. And, again, you can't, can't really argue with the results. But both Federer and Nadal cut a very different figure from what we're used to in tennis. I mean, there's, there's sort of uh, – I mean, and the Williams sisters, too, for that matter. So if, if the top four players uh, all came to their success so differently than sort of the conventional way, maybe the – you know, maybe the lesson from this is the conventional way needs to be reconsidered. Hmm. I especially appreciated uh, the the rules that were laid down by Rafael Nadal's uncle Tony, uh, three in particular. And in some respects, the first says so much about this family. Uh, uncle Tony's first rule for his nephew, if you ever throw a racket, we're finished. They're expensive, and when you throw a racket, you don't just disrespect the sport. You disrespect all the people who cannot afford equipment. 
that is a rule that should probably be uh, stenciled in, in, in a lot of places where tennis is taught. Yeah, exactly. And I think, uh, I mean, I think that says a lot, not just in terms of the decorum, but just sort of in terms of the, the whole philosophy. I mean, Nadal's uncle, who really, in some ways, is sort of a, a surrogate parent. I mean, this is the guy who coached him and traveled the world with him and I guess a close-knit family. And I think the uncle basically, you know, he has this um, you know, sort of my way or the highway mentality. And the uncle sort of, uh, again, they don't come from traditional tennis stock. This is not a family that's sort of grown up. I mean, they're, they're well off, but they didn't grow up with a lot of the you know material conveniences and status. And I think the uncle is very important to him that no matter where this kid's career got, that he kept his values. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've seen the guy in action, too. He means business. I mean, there's there time for Nadal will forget his water bottle in the uh, – in the locker room, and they'll go out to the practice courts, and someone will fetch it for him. And the uncle will wave the court attendant off and said, "No, no, no. Uh, you know, this was Raphael's responsibility, and he blew it. He's going to go in and get it." So you see the uh, number one player in the world running across the tennis complex to get a water bottle because his uncle doesn't want him to uh, feel like he can depend on others to cover up his, his errors. Another decision his uncle made. Uh, you tell us that he did not want tennis to come too easily to Raphael. And so he would, for instance, make his nephew practice with dead balls and on pocked courts that gave dishonest bounces. In other words, he he saw value in placing before his nephew obstacles that might create momentary frustrations, but which he obviously thought would further stiffen his spine and uh, and 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 force him to achieve even 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 greater skill. Yeah, I mean, the uncle had a philosophy, which I think is very smart, which is, look, on the days when everything's clicking and you're feeling great and you got a good night's sleep and the conditions are perfect, you know, a- anyone can go out there and play good tennis. It's the, you know, the winners and losers are being determined by who can play their best tennis when everything's not going well, when there's some obstacles and some adversity you've got to figure out a way to surmount. So, you know, Nadal would have a great practice, and the uncle would shrug and say, hey, it was a beautiful day, and you got a good night's sleep. I expect you to be good, but what are you going to do now when I play you with these dead balls and I'm aiming for the cracks in the court, so they're going to take some funny hops? And uh, I think that uh, certainly expresses itself in the way Nadal plays today. Hmm. Most of your book, of course, is um, is dedicated to this incredible match, blow by blow, <laughs> set by set. Uh, you take us through this drama, and one of the things I think you achieve that's that's truly amazing is that anybody who follows tennis knows how this match is going to end, and yet somehow you've created an account of this match which reads like a thriller, or I mean like a suspense yeah. novel, even though obviously there can't be too much in the way of real suspense in terms of how this is going to turn out. Was that something you consciously tried to do? Uh, no, I, I appreciate that. I mean, the match sort of packed it for itself. And uh, just the, the turns and the, the twists that this match took were so naturally suspenseful. Um, but, no, you're right. I mean, it's like I said earlier that, that nobody wants to hear in the third game Nadal hit a backhand down the line and Federer responded with a forehand. I mean, it, it had to be more than just sort of play-by-play. Play. First of all, because you're right, everybody sort of knew the outcome already, but also just it you know, probably doesn't make for uh, interesting reading. So I think, um, you know, the, the match itself really unfolded like a, a, a thriller. And 
you know, as, as trite as it sounds, I do have a new respect for the phrase, uh, you know, a, a shame someone had to lose. Because, uh, you know, again, you a lot, lot of cliches there, but you, you do uh, – they, they both played well enough to win. Absolutely. You, you take us not only through the match, but also through its immediate aftermath. And uh, one of the things that we come away with is uh, their graciousness, but particularly the, the, the exquisite sensitivity which Rafael Nadal, the victor, demonstrated towards uh, his vanquished foe. Uh, and a lot of tennis players would not have been so careful about their opponent's feelings. Uh, tell our listeners, for instance, what Rafael Nadal did in terms of giving Federer space uh, in those few minutes uh, once after they had both left the court. Yeah, they had both, they had both from the court, and, and, you know, it was clear that Federer was really rocked by this defeat, and, um, and Nadal, Nadal's entourage was outside the locker room, and they had champagne, and someone from the club had brought them, you know, a tray of, of champagne glasses, and Nadal sort of shushed them and uh, told them to be quiet, and then Nadal, I mean, the, the Wimbledon locker room, especially for the scene, is a fairly small enclosure. And Nadal ended up, you know, he sort of went around in his sweaty clothes because he didn't want to take a shower. He wanted to just sort of give Federer his his space. And uh, I thought between between sort of telling his family to pipe down because it was too close to Federer and it would be pouring salt in his wounds, and then just sort of leaving the locker room alone and just sort of doing his business. And I mean, I think I think Nadal didn't change till about an hour after the match because he wanted to give Federer his space. I thought that that really showed a lot. Mm. In a sense, that makes it even less surprising when there is that extraordinary moment between these two players uh, after the Australian Open. And I think it was the very next Australian Open where Nadal is again the victor and Roger Federer actually breaks down in tears uh, during the, uh, the trophy presentation. And... Um, the gentle, encouraging words of Rafael Nadal. I mean, if there had ever been any doubt, there shouldn't have been, but if there was any kind of doubt about what kind of a gentleman Rafael Nadal is, surely those doubts were put to rest uh, that night of that Australian Open final. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That uh, Federer, you know, Nadal beat Federer again. Again, it was five sets, and you got the feeling between the emotions of the match and Federer sort of realizing, boy, this kid's really got my number. Federer just lost it at the trophy presentation. I mean, just cr- crying to the point he couldn't speak. And Nadal, you know, covered for him, sort of uh, took the microphone and then very gracefully uh, sort of made the best of that situation. I, th- I mean, I think the other thing that's really nice is that, um, you know, for both these players have had successes since that Wimbledon in 2008. Nadal won in Australia. He won the Olympic gold medal. He's number one today as, as we speak, and yet Federer also has had successes since then. One, winning the French Open, he's a defending champ at Wimbledon, so it was nice that they had this tremendous match, this great rivalry, this sort of epic Wimbledon final, and yet it didn't really, you know, spell doom for the loser. They both were able to sort of thrive since then. Um, and, and, you know, their rivalry still goes strong. So, I mean, I think one, one of the nice things about this story is Federer losing that match, he's you know, clearly pained, clearly there's been some sort of changing of the guard, and yet it wasn't the final chapter in, in their story. Unlike, for instance, uh, that uh, the, the the rather steep decline which occurred with Bjorn Borg and, and then sort of the abrupt uh, cancellation of his career, essentially, 
uh, I mean, this this seems like a rivalry which may, uh, as far as we can tell at the moment, go on and on and on. Uh, what is your assessment of Rafael Nadal and his health? Because, of course, he's had injury troubles which uh, really gave him uh, all kinds of difficulty in the wake of that Australian Open victory the rest of the year was pretty much ruined by that. Uh, is this something we're likely to see a lot of in the years to come uh, because of the kind of game he plays? Or is it hard to say? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think he's gotten better at handling his body. I mean, I think better plays such sort of graceful, you know, very sort of light on his feet. Tennis Nadal, obviously heavier, a lot more exertion. And I think, you know, the big question mark covering over Nadal is just can his body hold up? Can his body withstand this sort of punishment? And I think... Uh, you know, I mean, I think the rest of his career, honestly, is probably going to go like it has these past few years, where when he's healthy, he's great, and when he's not, he's not. In a few months of the year, he's going to have to uh, take it easy, and that's just sort of the, the reality. I mean, I don't think he's – I mean, I, I don't think it's the kind of thing where he's going to disappear, but I don't think it's the kind of thing where we can realistically expect him to, uh, to play tennis 10, 11 months of the year. So uh, as, uh, as things proceed from here – any gut feelings on how Mr. Federer and Mr. Nadal are going to be doing in this currently played uh, Wimbledon championship? Well, I mean, it's interesting. In a way, they're both the defending champs. You know, Nadal didn't play last year, so he comes in, you know, riding that seven-match winning streak from 08. Federer is, is the, you know, the, the formal defending champion. And I think, you know, I, it, it's interesting. They're both. Yeah, you know, uh, you know they obviously both have a great track record at Wimbledon. Nadal probably playing better, um, but you know who, who knows? I mean, they're both sort of champions. We saw with better in the first round, very nearly lost, and people said, "Oh, this is the end. This is the beginning of the end. This boy, you know, this this guy finished." And yet, people forget that he still figured out a way to win that match, which is, is what champions do. So, um, you know, I, I think which, which, whatever happens, it's sort of. It's going to be an interesting plot twist either way, whether it's Nadal winning Wimbledon again or, or Federer sort of getting his, his throne back. So, I mean, that's part of what makes this rivalry so fun is that it remains so, you know, so sort of like living and breathing, so, so vital that, um, you know, whatever happens, it just sort of adds to the, to the narrative. Hmm. The book, again, is called Strokes of Genius, Federer, Nadal, and the Greatest Match Ever Played, a book of remarkable insight into each of these two champions and what makes them a champion, and also marvelous insights into the very special chemistry that uh, exists between these two players. The book, now available in paperback, is published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. L. John Wertheim, I thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Very best wishes to you. Oh, thanks so much. Appreciate it.